Hi, this is Robin Morselli. You may remember me as a stand-in and a Bajoran ops and also Bajoran civilian on about 120 episodes of Deep Space Nine and on a couple other shows. You're listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. In order to make a scene in a TV show or a film feel real, it has to be alive. That usually means a setting with some energy to it, and oftentimes that includes the use of background extras. These performers add ambience to the scene and make it feel like it's actually taking place somewhere that you and I would just be walking around in. Now, you might remember the 10th episode of this podcast series way, way back when, when we interviewed Tracy Lee Coco, who you would have seen throughout the entirety of Star Trek The Next Generation. She had a very unique perspective on the series, being essentially a series regular who you always saw, but never heard from. On this week's episode, we meet the Deep Space Nine equivalent of this type of character with our guest, Robin Morselli. If you've ever watched Deep Space Nine, look up Robin's name, and I promise you will immediately recognize her face as a Bajoran officer on board the space station, who you've seen countless times. Robin appeared throughout all seven seasons of DS9, and also popped up a few times in a few other Trek shows that were filming in that era. Now, don't just discount her because she was in the background. If you're trusted enough to be appearing in over 100 episodes in the same exact role, you're clearly doing something right. And Robin was witness to many important moments and all sorts of behind-the-scenes things that most people wouldn't even ever have known about. And through her time being a regular background character in the show, she was able to build personal relationships with all of the primary cast, and she's got a lot of great stories about that. What I found most interesting about Robin is the fact that her Hollywood career is very much a mystery, much like, really, her entire life story. A lot of the information about her is not public knowledge, and that's because, for the most part, a lot of folks just haven't pursued it. But of course, this is Trek Untold, and we like to take deep dives in all sorts of people who contribute to the Star Trek universe, and that's why Robin is such a perfect guest for this show. So today, we're accessing the personal logs and memories of a performer who you've always seen, but never knew anything about, until today. But before we jump into our interview, I want to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media? It's the best way to keep up to date on who's going to be the next guest on Trek Untold and to learn all about the other cool things that are happening here. So if you're on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, go ahead and look up Trek Untold, all one word, and give us a follow and a like. If you'd like to help support the show monetarily, go ahead and check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold to check out some of the merchandise we have available. This includes t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, sweatshirts, stickers, and a whole bunch more. So go ahead and check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you become a paid subscriber to Trek Untold, you'll get first access to the show and a chance to ask our guests questions on future episodes. But most of all, please subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it or watching it. And if you've already done that, please also leave a review and a rating if you can. Leaving ratings and reviews helps increase the visibility of podcasts on platforms like iTunes and other places like it. It shows that you're listening and that you like it, and other people who are interested in the same subject are going to probably like it too. It helps us grow, it helps us get better guests, and it helps us keep bringing this amazing Trek Untold show to you. If you're already following us or have supported us in any other way, thank you, of course, for being a part of the Trek Untold family. 
There's a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, and we're very grateful that you chose us to listen to. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired toys and replicas for fans of all ages and toys of all sizes. But you'll hear more about them a little later on in the show. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to the Trek Untold podcast. And now joining us on the other side of the screen, we have a face who I guarantee you've seen in a lot of Deep Space Nine, especially, but plenty of other Star Trek shows as well. Today, we are joined by Robin Morselli, and you have seen her as a background character in many, many episodes, over 100, in fact. And uh, we're going to talk about a few of those today. Robin, how's it going today? It's good. I'm really good. and staying cool in California. I live in Westlake Village, California. And um, you're in New York. Yeah, I'm, I'm in New York, and we're doing this interview right now, and there's like a terrible heat wave, so I'm just going to be like getting my air conditioner blasting while we do this and hope I'm that I don't melt. Too, so I hope you don't, <laughs> you don't hear it, but yeah, no, I'm really happy to be talking to you, and um, it's a lot of fun to have all these memories and go back because it was a really important part of my life. Yeah, this is pretty fun for me as well, because, you know, as I do the show here, it's not just about the main actors, not just about the principal cast. We really like to dig into the character actors, the other folks, and especially people like you, the stand-ins, the background extras. There's a lot of interesting stories you guys know that we've never heard. Um, so I, I'm very, very excited to really dig deep into what you remember, uh, talk about what we left behind, if you will, uh, and just talk all about all sorts of great Star Trek memories. But uh, Yeah, some I, some I can tell you and some I won't, but <laughs> most of them I can tell you. Well, Robin, before we start digging deep into the past here, I want to ask you, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Not being on the show, but just earliest memory of Star Trek in general. Well, that would have been when I was a child. I didn't really watch it all the time, but I knew who, what, what it was. It was the original Star Trek with Shatner, and um, I just... Uh, now, I, when I look back at it, and after we did tr shows like Trials and Tribulations... I've gone back to watch some of those shows and they, and they mean more now than they did when I was watching them as a kid. I didn't know a lot about all the intricacies of Star Trek when I started the show. And when I got hired on the show, um, it was kind of like, oh, I'm on, I'm on Star Trek, but I don't really know what I'm going to be. I don't understand it really. And then it took going to, you know, to the first day and figuring out what this was going to be like. And I had no idea it was going to last for uh, eight or nine years, actually, because I, I worked on some of the, the last shows after DS9 um, stopped filming. So, Robin, can you tell us uh, where you were born, who your parents were, and what little Robin wanted to be when she grew up? Okay. Um, I was born in Pasadena. Um, my mom was a... Well, let's start out with my mom. My mom was a um, kid in Iowa who uh, had to, her, the mother lost, there were four, the four boys and three, four boys and one girl. She was a girl. And um, she lost him to the Catholic services and they were all farmed out all over the place to different homes. And so that's kind of like, she went to nine foster homes when she was little. And then when she was 18, she went to Chicago and um, she wanted to be a dancer. And she uh, joined Arthur Murray's studio and um, was teaching dancing. And right before I was born, she was ready to go to New York for her audition for uh, to be a rock cat. But she ended up being pregnant, and that was a kind of squashed for her, especially at that time in the 50s. It was 1955. 
of 54 when she got pregnant. And then um, my father, she met, he was her student at Arthur Murray Studios. And um, they fell in love and so then got together. And then I was, he was from Philadelphia, Italian. Uh, she was Danish, Irish. Uh, her parents were from Ireland and Denmark. And um, yeah, that's where we, and so what happened was, is um, they came to California and across the United States from Chicago. And um, they lived on Franklin Boulevard in Hollywood and for three years. And then my sister was born. And then my dad, um, who I ended up having a very good relationship with later in life, but he put us on a train back to Iowa and he just didn't pick us up. So we were, my mom was a single mom for a while. And then I had a stepfather that was, um, was in the army. She married a guy that was in the army and then we traveled all over the United States. Um, Texas, we were in El Paso at Fort Worth and um, went to St. Louis and Chicago and ended up in Chicago where I went to high school at Lake, in Lake Zurich, which is in, in Northern Illinois and graduated from uh, Lake Zurich High School. And then after that, um, I went from Lake Zurich High School I, to Western Illinois University where I went, spent Three, I graduated in three and a half years because I had to kind of get through. I was paying, I was working at a hamburger place and going to school full time. And um, I graduated in three and a half years with a pre-law and sociology degree. Um, I spent probably six months working in the projects in Chicago, uh, Cabrini Green, which has now been destroyed and uh it's no longer there, but it was a very uh, hard job working with kids and uh, families then. So at any point, was acting a part of your plan or was this something else you wanted to do with your life? I mean, you said you wanted to do something lighter, but uh, before this point, I mean, was acting in your, your lens of view? Yes. I mean, I love, first of all, I loved movies. I, I, I was a movie, even as a child, a movie buff. I loved the old movies with Audrey Hepburn and with um, Catherine Hepburn and just Cary Grant loved all the old movies and watch them as much as I could as whenever they were on TV, because the things, you know, we only had like five channels at that time and I, dating myself back at the beginning, it was black and white. So with the bunny ears on the top where we put foil to try to get the um, reception, but I did a couple plays in middle school and I wanted, I did some theater in high school a little bit, but uh, when I went to college, I loved the theater also, my mom, because of what happened with her and being a single mom and everything, she wanted me to be a lawyer. So I initially was going to be doing that. And that's why I went to pre-law school instead of doing theater in college, which I was really what I wanted to do. But she didn't feel like it was a viable situation. And so I wanted to make her happy and not worry about me. So I did the law instead and didn't do the theater in uh, college. And then when I got out of college, um, that's when I ended up going to do the other, a bunch of, whole bunch of other jobs. And so after college, like I mentioned, you did that, you wanted to get something lighter as well in your field of work. And that was basically away from law, away from uh, the stuff you were working on already. 
Uh, and that leads to kind of an interesting and unique job that you had. Uh, I'll let you tell us what that was, <laughs> but uh, well, I was very I, surprised to hear about this one. Well, first of all, I, I had some loans to pay off. I, I, I paid, that was paying for college by myself. And um, so I, I went up to, I was in Northern Illinois and Lake Geneva was not too far away. So I drove there and they had a big audition for bunnies to work in the, in the clubs. And it, it was a ski area also. So um, I went there, did the audition and I guess they liked me. I looked like what they, you know, thought I should look like. And I worked there for a couple, oh, probably almost a year and a half or two years. So Robin Marcelli was a playboy bunny. Yes, making a lot of money to pay off my bills. I mean, just it's basically waiting tables um, in heat in three inch heels and (laughs) carrying 40 cocktails on a tray. Yeah, I don't think I could do that. And and I work in the Bunny Hutch, which was the dance club, you know, there too. And then the the restaurant and then also the ski area. Um, They had uh, cocktails and things like that up there. And actually, a really funny part is I met James Darren there when he was playing the club. Yeah, James Darren, who, of course, went on to be Vic Fontaine. Yes, which I brought up to him when he was working on the show. And he, we both were laughing because I was, they're both, you know, he remembered. He didn't remember me necessarily, but he remembered, you know, working there. He, I think he worked there a couple times, at least when I was there. So that was funny. And um, that's what I did. And then... I, do you, do you want to know what I did after that? So yeah, let's let's get the whole journey here and how you eventually got into acting. I want to hear. I want to see where this goes. <laughs> okay. So after that, um, my father um, was in California. We, we had visited him some when we were kids uh, on the plane. He, my mom put us on the plane when we were little tiny kids on Continental Airlines with a little badge on that says we were alone. Maybe I was. I may have been six and my sister was four. And we'd go on the planes by ourselves to California, just go see my dad. And my dad was like Disneyland dad. You know, we'd, we'd get off the plane and he had his red Cadillac with the big wings on the back. And we just thought it was like the coolest thing. We'd jump in the convertible, no seatbelts, nothing. And he was just like, uh, he was a character. He was a big character. He was a, actually, he was a uh, maitre d' at the Bistro in Beverly Hills. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. But it was an old restaurant on Cannon Drive um, that initially hosted a lot of the Oscar parties and things like that. And uh, a lot of the who's who in old Hollywood uh, where I worked for a little bit later uh, in the coat room. And I made a lot of money doing the coat room, which is nowadays it was it was a room filled with about 200 fur coats, which would not be go, go over well today, but I'd just sit, I'd be sitting in there with these, in these furs uh, and helping, you know, in the coat room and then um, have a lot of stories from there too, but that's, we can go into that another time. <laughs> that's a different podcast altogether, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. And so from there also, you were a flight attendant, right? Well, that's where uh, my dad was in uh, California, and he knew Robert Six from uh, Continental Airlines. He was uh, the the head head cheese at at Continental Airlines, and he uh, talked to him, and Robert Six let me come out to California to have an interview to be a flight attendant, and I passed that, and I was went through training. Uh, I was in flight attendant training in Marina Del Rey. And then got hired, you know, I was hired and then went to uh, Texas and started my flight attendant career, which was about five years. 
I flew for the airlines and just traveled and flew. And I lived in Texas for a little bit, but I, I came back to California and I commuted back to Texas to work because I was on call or most of the time. I wasn't the senior, the senior flight attendant, so I had to take uh, the, the trips as they came. I didn't really have a schedule. And then I moved back to California and then lived in uh, Manhattan Beach with a, another flight attendant friend of mine who's still a friend. Did that for five years. And when the airlines kind of, they, Frank Lorenzo uh, was a person that bought, bought the airline and then changed the airline completely um, as far as the way that it was run. And we were kind of laid off and stuff like that. So um, I was, I didn't go back after that. Um, I went back one time and then I decided I didn't want to fly anymore because it was, it had changed so much uh, from when I first started, but it was a great opportunity and a great uh, job that I had a lot of fun at. So you're a pre-law student, you're a playboy bunny, you're a flight attendant. Where does Hollywood start to fit into this picture? Okay. So after that, um, gosh, let's see. When they were, when I was laid off, I was a bartender. And I didn't know how to bartend, but I, there was a little restaurant um, on Ventura Boulevard called La Frite. And I had two other friends uh, that were working there and they said they needed a bartender. And I said, well, I can, I, I can, I'm the kind of person that says, well, I can do that. And I have no idea. Cause I, I, I mean, I drink maybe a cocktail now and then and a little bit of wine, but I wasn't a big drinker. So I brought a, bought a bar book and took the job and um, actually bartended there for almost two years. Then after that, I went to, um, I was living in Redondo Beach then with a boyfriend and we broke up and I decided I was going to go and help my mom with her businesses in Seattle. So um, she lived in Idaho, moving to Seattle and was opening a business in downtown Seattle, a clothing store. So she wanted me to be her buyer and I decided that I would make a change because everything had kind of changed for me and went there to be a buyer. And uh, my mother had a lot of health problems. So eventually, in about a year and a half or two years after that, we lost, kind of lost the business because she wasn't well. And um, bought a house in West Seattle for her to live in because she wanted to stay in Seattle. And then I decided that I was going to come back to California and pursue or try to get my SAG card and try to do some acting, try to do my acting. But I had also taken, along the way, I had taken some acting classes when I was in California. I took from um, uh, Tracy Roberts uh, Acting School, um, David LeGrant, who um, I went to, actually, uh, Lynn Whitfield. Are you familiar with her? She's a, a wonderful actress. Uh, she was in my class. Uh, John Corbett was in my Tracy Roberts class and uh, did a scene with him. Um, I also was with Ed Hooks, who was a commercial uh, um, teacher during that time also. So I was trying to train along the way when I was working in the bartending and stuff like that. So I had some experience with that. So when I came back, I decided that I, I was just gonna sign up with Central Casting, get myself out there and see what I could do on my own. So I signed up and I worked on several shows, um, one of which was In the Line of Fire. It was a movie with Clint Eastwood and directed by Wolfgang Peterson and um, ended up uh, being a 
prime, prime one of the people that was featured on in that movie. Spent a lot like four days with um, Fred Thompson, who was at that time uh, an actor working on that show, and he was he wasn't a politician yet, but he and I talked politics the whole time. He was a Republican, I was a Democrat. And we had great conversations for four days because we had a, a scene on the stage. I don't, did you ever see that movie? I, I ha- I'm familiar with it, but I haven't actually seen it. It's John Malkovich, and he's cr- kind of a crazy guy. And it's it was a whole s- scene that was on the stage uh, when he came in uh, to mess everybody up. <laughs> and um, But it was a wonderful time, and I got to talk with Clint Eastwood a lot. You know, he was very friendly to all the background and to people that were working on the show, as, as was Wolfgang Peterson. So that was a, a really great um, experience. During that show, it was weird because I, I lived in uh, with a friend of mine uh, on our, uh, in Hancock Park, and I had gone home one night. It was very late because usually when you're back on, you can have longest days. You go in the morning, and, you know, you may not get home till midnight sometimes. And uh, I I parked my car and I got I got mugged. They tried to hijack my car, and so uh, what happened was is I ended up. Um, going through that and the guy who had the gun at my my uh, stomach put it down a little bit as he opened my trunk to get stuff out and I shoved him down on the ground and started running and ran and saved myself and then I had to show up on the set the next day and told Clint Eastwood this story and um, he was very sweet but I was a little bit traumatized that I was not going to not go to work you know because I thought the, the show must go on and um, yeah, that's a kind of a crazy story that happened with that. And then I worked on a couple other things. Uh, one movie with Robert Blake really early on. Um, I worked on 90210. Uh, my, my husband was a camera guy on there. So I worked on that, that show after, after I got married a little bit. So there's some other shows that I worked on, but mainly after I got my job on Star Trek, it was a full-time job. I, mean, I definitely want to dive into the Star Trek stuff, but you know, like I mentioned before, there's not much out there about Robin Morselli. So, uh, and you know, and your IMDb page is practically non-existent. It basically, lists like a little bit of Star Trek, but not even all of your Star Trek. So, I'd love if you could help fill I, in the know, blanks. I yeah, I don't know if they give you much credit when you're, you know, background and stuff like that. You know, I mean, it's kind of just falls into a category that's that's non-existent, which is the kind of the way it is. <clears throat> even if you're on a show for seven years, it, it doesn't really count, I guess. But it, for me, um, and I, 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 you know, I didn't put it on my IMDb because I just um, didn't, I'm like, I don't even know how to do that. <laughs> I'll help you with that off, uh, off this interview. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, so in addition to those, I mean, I'd, I'd love to kind of fill in the blanks for our audience out there who's listening and now just meeting you for the first time. I and mean, where, where else can we see your face pop up? Oh, gosh, let me think. Um, See, now I was on the Star Trek. I was thinking about Star Trek, and now I have to think about that. Because <laughs> I, I know there were several things that, oh, I, I was on Seinfeld. Um, oh. I, worked on, I worked on the JFK episode uh, on Seinfeld. That was a good episode. Yeah. A um, couple other shows, and I'm trying to remember uh, all of them. But I can't, I, I can't remember all of them. It was like, a, it's kind of a blur <laughs> before. 
Um, well, for I, folks who don't know really how that kind of stuff works, also, I mean, you're trying to get your SAG after card too. So, like, what do you have to do as a as a stand-in or background extra to actually like qualify for benefits, qualify for your card? Uh, how, how does that work? Well, what happened with me is I can't when I came back to LA and and joined Central Casting, uh, they'd send me out on a lot of different things. And you, if you want, if you're getting your background card as an if you're getting your SAG card as an extra, you, they actually have to give you a um, a voucher that is a SAG voucher. And that is tricky because they, they're really stingy with them. Um, but what, if they know, like for me, I couldn't work every day on that show and not be SAG because of what I was doing. And um, also they want, when they have stand-ins, they have a certain amount of stand-ins they can have, but they have to be SAG. And then the rest are non-union. Well, because it's such a big show, I was able to qualify for my um, SAG card pretty fast. Now, I don't know how it goes these days, but, um, you know, if you, if you're working on a show and you show, um, responsibility and they can trust you and you're showing up and you're on time and you have work ethic and all that kind of stuff for, I think that, you know, you can, you can, you just have to go for it and you can't give up. You just have to try it every way and not, not in a bad way, but just show them who you are and, and, that they could they 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 trust you to be on their sets that you have work ethic you you know and you're you're a good person basically um, you kind of make a relationship and they they will a lot of times they'll help you but uh, like I said I don't know how it's going right now these days but um, I the SAG card for me wasn't very hard to get. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, I'm Jonathan Frakes. If you're of a certain age, you may remember me as Commander Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation. And my wonderful brother Daniel died with pancreatic cancer 24 years ago. They opened him up, they diagnosed, they said, you've got six months to live. And that was it. He died four months later. And at that time, there was a 3% survival rate. Since then, we've grown to the embarrassingly high number of 10%. But a dear friend of mine and probably all of yours, Kitty Swink, is one of those 10%. She has survived pancreatic cancer for 17 going on 18 years. 
Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States, with a five-year survival rate. That's just 10%. And more than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021. More than 48,000 will die from the disease because symptoms are often vague and be hard to detect. That's why I'm supporting the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocacy organization committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PanCan is working hard to create outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research in early detection and better treatment options. PanCan drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers like you who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive. You can help support our important mission by donating today at pancan.org. Thanks for your time. We now return to Trek Untold. So, Robin, let's go ahead and jump on into our Star Trek discussion because we had a lot of episodes to go through. <laughs> now we're going to get through 120, but we'll talk about some highlights of your time on Trek. But uh, let's just first dive into how you actually got the gig. And was that through central casting? It was central casting, and it was a huge cattle call thing. Uh, it was actually an audition. They just got me the audition. And we all showed up. Um, just There were, I don't know, I don't know how many people there were. There were just lines of people showing up and I really didn't know what it was for. I just, I knew it was through Star Trek, but I didn't know what it was for exactly. And what they were doing was they were auditioning people for not only, I guess the way they looked for certain things. And in my case, uh, they hired me as an ops military uh, Bajoran. And if you saw the initial uh, casting of the Bajoran women, they were all kind of high cheekbones. You could slick their hair back. Uh, it was a, uh, you could braid and do all kinds of stuff with their hair. And it was, it was a certain look in the beginning, I think, that you can see if you look back at some of the episodes. And um, that's what they hired me for. And then in contrast, if you're a Bajoran and, and ops, you can be a, a civilian also on the, on the promenade. So I had a couple, uh, I had a, a military outfit. So every time I had an ops um, uh, scene, I would work in the ops scene somewhere. And then um, in the promenade, I, I was there too. But a lot of times when, when, you're a stand, when you're a stand-in or a person on the show, they don't want to see you all the time. They don't want to see your face all the time. So a lot of times we're, you know, we're in the background, like back, back, because we're there all the time. Um, I mean, I use you like, you know, different, different things all day long, maybe the back walking away, you know, with your back and stuff like that. So they don't recognize you all the time. Now, was your first DS9 episode, the pilot of the series? Actually, yes. Uh, I'm trying to think of it. I went, I, I think I was hired and I don't know if I, I don't think I worked the pilot, but I worked everything after that. Yeah, because you were there basically for the entire seven seasons of Deep Space Nine, right? And you were basically yeah. playing the same Bajoran security officer. Yes, yes. But I, but I also did many other um, aliens also. Michael Westmore, um, like, I, he and I got along really well because I would never complain with my makeup and I took really good care of my makeup all day long. 
so they wouldn't have to. I wasn't a high maintenance pers person with makeup on. And also I was really open-minded and I loved it. The only thing I asked him is that he wouldn't put me in a full head that went over my face and like this, but he did a lot of makeups that had pieces. Uh, but I was a Romulan. Um, I, I did Klingon a lot. I was a Klingon. Um, a couple other aliens that, that don't have names <laughs> um, with different, they piece different things together and create things on me too. And um, it was a lot of fun. And, I, and it actually allowed me to spend a lot of time with the makeup, incredible makeup artists that were on that show. And uh, I was able to get my makeup done in Michael Westmore's, like, his office, his place where he had all the masks and, and just all the history. And you'd be sitting there in the morning and you'd be looking at all this stuff going, oh, every time. I never got, I never got tired of it. It's like, I can't believe this. This is just incredible. You'd see all these different masks from different characters that you've seen all through the years um, on the, on the wall as you were getting your makeup done. I'm curious, you know, the Bajoran makeup, that's fairly simple, but things like Klingons, like other species that have more stuff on them, is your makeup as an extra the same as what a principal cast member would be seen in like, you know, with close-ups? Is your makeup basically identical to what they would have or do you have something different? No, I mean, pretty much the same. Um, we would show up, uh, well, when I was a Bajoran, even Bajoran though, I mean, it's a beauty makeup. So they do do the nose and they got it down faster as, as we went along. But to start out, it was like a two and a half. I'd show up at work for probably five, five o'clock, and show up on set at seven for the most part. Um, that's after they got it down. Because it, between the makeup and going to get your, your, your wardrobe on, uh, it took that long. And then you try to get a little breakfast before you got on the set. And um, then it was a long, you know, your, your, day, your day would begin. And... Klingon, I would be there 2.33 in the morning, and it would take till 7 to get me ready between wow. the costuming, the hair, the uh, Klingon makeup. And, yeah, you know, um, they, when they put all the pieces on, they put the pieces on, but then they have to um, paint everything and, and make you, you know, like a beautiful – Klingons weren't necessarily beautiful, but they really had to – you know, they do your eyes, they do your – everything had to be done on top of uh, the, the prosthetics. And I've heard horror stories about when you're doing an alien character, how sometimes you have to wear contact lenses and those contacts can be terrible. Did you ever have to deal with any contact lenses? I, I never did have to do that, thankfully. But you were one of the I, lucky ones. But I would have. <laughs> <laughs> I would have done it. You know, I, I just found it so fun, you know, to, to, it was like you were playing. I mean, it was hard work too and long hours, but I never got sick of, of doing it and um i just loved i loved it i loved it it was really fun and we had a lot of fun on the set i mean a lot of the background was the same a lot of the same people were in the background at the end that began the show and that was really cool and uh the stand-ins a few of them changed and i had a few stand i was stood in for her when her stand-ins were leaving she went through a few um because they were trying to get somebody to look Exactly. They wanted replicas so that if they turned them around, they could dress them if they needed to fill in something, you know. And I wasn't necessarily the same size as Nana, but I stood in for a lot because we were kind of the same um, height. 
and for just a stand-in, I could stand in for her. And, and I did in several episodes. But, uh, the one that stands out to me that I loved doing was the mirror episode with her. Uh, that was awesome. And just being close to her and watching her work um, was inspiring. She is amazing. And she's so incredible to work with and her character and, and getting into character and she's professional and she's nice. And I can't say enough good things about Nana. I mean, as an extra, are, are you able to really kind of build relationships with the principal cast at all? Or is it kind of like you're off to the side doing your own thing? Well, if you're a ex regular extra on a show and you don't have the kind of job we did, probably it's hard to say. Sometimes you can connect with people or they're just really nice and they want to talk to people. And sometimes they're very, they don't want to talk to, you know, the background. It's like, that's the background and this is the, the, the real people. It's not always great being background on, on a set, you know. But some sets have like a different food table with different kinds of food. You know, they, they just don't treat their background very well. And I was an advocate for all those years for, because we had some huge background calls. And after I was working quite a while, I made sure that, you know, that there was plenty of water for people. And we had a great catering guy, you know, uh, Terry Ahern on the set, and he was amazing. And um, there was a lot of respect. And if there was ever a problem, you know, I would speak up for them. Um, And there were very few problems, you know, it was like everybody wanted to work on our show for the most part. You may find somebody that maybe didn't but for the most part everybody i talked to they they wanted to be uh, cast on that show as many times as they could in a you know in, in an episode well within that group of people i mean was there camaraderie between the other background characters or again was it just like a job so you get people swapping oh, in and out no i it really was i mean everybody was just like it was like when we saw each other it was like old, old home week every time and everybody was so happy to be there because the money was good too you knew you were going to usually have a really long day and you get extra bumps, extra money when you put make when you do your makeup and stuff like that. And a lot of times, you know, they, I mean, the crew knew knew most of the background. They knew the camera guys, and they knew, you know, um, everybody. So um, it was it was very very different than I think a lot of shows are. And we spent so much time there together because the days were so long, and they could be you could have you know anywhere from a twelve to eighteen hour day, and if you were a Klingon or something, and you had, you, I, I, I think the longest day I had was maybe 19 or 20 hour days or something, well, a couple of them. I love my paycheck, but boy, that's a long time, you know, you're, and then in your car, then going home in your car. So it's like, you know, it's a, like a 24 hour day <laughs> to go to work. But I was younger then, too. and It was, it was doable. So as we mentioned, you got this gig through Central Casting, but you were in a hundred. Oh, you know, I think you said about 120 episodes of, of Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does that actually work, though? Because essentially, you're a regular background extra. So, like, do they call you in constantly? Are you part of some kind of like special group, or is just well, Central Casting just, to say you're you're over there and you do it again today? Well, usually, you know, if I wasn't background, I was standing in for somebody. Um, I was a, a utility stand-in. I would. I started out being standing in for Nana quite a bit because her stand-in was le- her initial stand-in was leaving, and so I'd stand in for her. And then when they changed directors of photography from R- Marvin Rush to Jonathan West, uh, they decided that maybe they wanted um, somebody that looked exactly like Nana. So they 
in fact, there was one time during that time when uh, someone tried to end my job and it didn't happen because too many people wanted me to stay. And, and I'd already worked there a couple of years and they knew my work ethic and they knew I cared. And, and beside that, that job was paying for taking care of my mom up in Seattle and me down here. So it was, it was literally um, very important to me, not only for the job, but for our, my survival. And so I fought for it and somebody fought for me and a couple of the actors spoke up and I was able to stay. And that's when I became more of a utility stand and I stood in for uh, a lot of the background women. Um, uh, Louise Fletcher, all the time. She was phenomenal. We had a, I just loved her. We had a great relationship. She was funny and I, I just had a ball with her. I stood in for Majel. Um, and that was always fun. She was a, a hoot. And she, the costumes that these ladies were wearing, I mean, it was just, it was just so fun, you know, to, to be on set with them and get to know them a little bit. And they were so respectful and good with me, too. And I took care of them. You know, there was a change. If I was standing in a light and they weren't on set and they changed something, when they came on set, I would tell them exactly what they needed to do so they would be do it right the first time, you know, and they, and they knew where the light was or they knew where the change was or where the tape was moved or whatever like that. So I loved doing that, you know, because um, I was helping them too. And it was fun for me because I was on, I was able to have one-on-one -on -one time on the set. It was personal and um, fulfilling for me as much as that could be. The other thing I loved doing was I loved doing lines with, we were there so many hours. A lot of the actors had to wear these makeups for hours and hours and hours. And in order to get them out so they can get them back in in the morning, they have a certain amount of hours that they have to be off. So maybe if they were doing a scene with someone else and they had been in really early, they had to get that actor out and they couldn't do the, the off-camera lines with the actor. So I was able to do that. And I remember one time when I was doing off-camera lines with Renee Obisionois. And he, he, was, he was there, and the person that was um, doing the lines with him had to go, and they had to get their makeup off and get home. And he just said, give it to me like, like, you know, like, like she did. Like, I want to hear something. I need A lot of times they don't. They want to hear this monotone. They don't want to hear anything that's going to be distracting from somebody else. But he let, he, he let me, you know, actually do it, you know, be the actor on the other side of the camera. And that was, that was wonderful. And he, he was, he thanked me and said, you know, it helped him a lot in that particular scene. And so we got to do that a lot too. And that made it more interesting and fun also. And on that topic too, you mentioned to me off camera before we started this interview that you also did some stand-in work for a lot of the male actors, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Jeffrey Combs, I stood in for him when he was playing Brunt and uh, Wei Yun. Uh, I, oh, and also when he, oh, with the blue. So that was uh, Shran from Enterprise, and you were doing uh, some stand-in work for him on, on Enterprise, too. Right, right, right. And um, my son, at that time when it, when it was Enterprise, my, I'd already had my son. My son would come to the set, and I have pictures of him sitting on his lap with the blue makeup on. And uh, he was so nice. And um, I just saw him at uh, Aaron Eisenberg's memorial uh, back recently and um he was uh, he's just a wonderful guy and also so talented 
it was really fun to watch him work these different uh, characters. I loved it. And every so often I'd stand in for a Ferengi, if it was a Ferengi episode. Because of my height, I was kind of like just that 5'7 height for some of them. If, if I was a little taller, I'd scratch down a little bit, you know, to, to get, get down there. But uh, I stood, also stood in for Salome Jens, and she was another incredible, wonderful lady. I don't mean to, like, sugarcoat this, but, you know, it's like these actors were on our show, that we had on our show were just phenomenal. Every one of them. The regular actors... I can't think of, I mean, they had, you know, everybody has their days, but I can't think of one that I didn't get along with or enjoy working with. Now, we, we talked about how you were running lines earlier with Renee, uh, but typically for the stand-ins and for the background characters, you don't get to say dialogue. And I think a part of that has to do also with your contract uh, and, and, I guess, union rules. But were there any episodes where you did get to say any lines or did you want to say lines? Did you want to have a bigger role in the show or were you content uh, just doing what you were doing? Towards the last part, uh, last couple of years of our show, because we've been on the show for so long, they were tr- they would try to uh, they asked us, you know, if what we were interested in, if there was something else that we would like to do too. And a lot of the uh, stand-ins um, had lines. They had a uh, Randy Flug had a couple lines. Uh, who he was uh, Colin Meany's stand-in, um, Kathy Devono had some lines. She was a Dabo girl. Um, she's still a good friend of mine. Um, uh, and she, she had a couple, um, I think they tried to give lines to people. They asked me and I said, what I, what I wanted and what I asked for, if it was possible was to do voiceover. I wanted to learn how to do voiceover because after that, after I had my son, I thought that would be something really cool to be able to do. And it wouldn't be like 18 hours a day. So I was given the opportunity to do voiceover on the last season of um, DS9, of which I did all the shows the last season uh, in the studio. And uh, it was great. And it, but I, when I initially went into the, uh, in to do the voiceovers, um, I was not welcomed very much by the person who was running it. So it was a hard job for me, but I proved myself, I feel like, and I, I made it through all the episodes, and it was something that I just loved to do also. It was great, and I felt so accomplished because it wasn't an easy gig to do. But it was easy to do the work, but it was there was politics stuff kind of going on in there, so I had to kind of maneuver around that a little bit, but it didn't, it didn't do I'm the only person who knew, who would say that, but I did my job and I loved it. And I learned a lot. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad to hear that you were so fulfilled by your experience on the show. And aside from giving you paychecks, it also, you know, gave you something for yourself deep inside of you. And, and also just as great is the fact that you met your husband on Star Trek. So yeah. Star Trek gave you your husband. Uh, so please yeah. tell us about that story. Yeah. Well, I'm not a proponent of dating people on the, on the set <laughs> really, or at work, you know, I just, don't really think that works a lot of times and it's not very professional, you know, but I, I had met him. Uh, he was a day player as he's a camera person, a camera assistant. And um, when he come on the show, he was just really nice. And he had I had somebody, a girlfriend in his life. And I, I had somebody, but we still 
you know, would talk and he was very friendly. It wasn't really flirty. It was just friendly. And um, probably a couple years later after that, um, we had a rap party and we just ended up talking and, and hanging out together and then have been together ever since. And um, that was, we, were, we dated for like three years first and then uh, got married uh, in California here um, at the Bistro Garden in North Hollywood. And um, my dad threw the wedding because he was at Maitre D' at the Bistro. <clears throat> so he uh, arranged our whole wedding at the Bistro Garden. And um, it was a lovely wedding and a lot of people from Star Trek. Uh, there, was, there were a few people from Star Trek that, were, that came, some really important friends. But, um, and then I was at that point, for, I was 42 years old, so I, I didn't know if I was going to have children. I uh, wasn't sure about if that was going to work out. I got married in January and I had my son in December. And so I was still working on Star Trek at that time. And um, they were wonderful. My, when I went to have my child, they had a big uh, baby shower for me on the set. Terry Farrell gave me this beautiful uh, stroller for my son and, and everybody else, you know, they gave me these beautiful gifts and, and beautiful cards and, and wonderful things. It just made me feel so great. And, Went and had my son, and then I came back. The first episode I came back to was the baseball episode. And I remember the first day leaving my son in daycare, and I was, like, kind of weepy during that episode, you know. And they were, everybody was so supportive and wonderful to me. And, um, and also, I, uh, because I was – he was just a baby – I was still breastfeeding. Is it, can you say that on your podcast? I think you just did, so we can't change it now. It's too late. We've just said it. <laughs> so, but there was nowhere to, you know, nowhere to really go when you were background. And so um, I went to, uh, uh, or Terry Farrell and Nana Visitor let me use their trailers for, for wow. doing that. And that was wonderful because at the time, that was many years ago. Now, now I'm sure that they're more advanced on those things. But during that time, you know, it was very, you had to be very creative to try to do that. And so they, they helped me do that. And I worked on the show. I worked until the very end of the, the series. And we should add that you were pregnant and still filming, right? So, like, what did they do? Yeah. They, they had to change your outfit? They cha- did they change your character at all? Uh, no, I was a Bajoran civilian. I wasn't, okay. an, I wasn't an ops at that point. Um, but I was. You were temporarily demoted. Well, <laughs> They just, they made me some great uh, maternity outfits of which I wore, you know, during uh, the filming. Now, are there any shoot days that particularly stand out in your mind? Any like really, really great days? Any really, really rough, terrible, no good, awful days? I remember one day when we were in the desert with the Jem'Hadar. And I remember um, being out there. And we were, I was standing in because I'm not a Jem'Hadar person. And we, we were standing in for them. And it was literally so, it was hot like it is right now. And they had to keep them in vans because, do you, you know, the, how the Jemadar is like a big outfit and there's hardly any breathing room. Literally, it was so hot that if they put their arms down, water would drip out of their hand. It, like they had to keep, you know, keep them dry, keep trying to keep them dry because water was just dripping out of these costumes. And um, I remember everybody had to sit in these air conditioned vans to work. That was pretty amazing. Um, I remember doing a scene or standing in for um, 
uh, Nana in the, the Mirror episode, which was really interesting. The one episode where Terry kisses the other woman, I was in that, I stood in for her, and that was a very uh, important episode for her. And I was able to be there as her stand-in, and I was um, moved by you know her whole um, performance in that, and she was very. I wanted to, to support her because it was a, it was a heavy, heavy, heavy episode. Um, I just remember trying to just be you know the one with Renee, Renee, you know, doing lines with Renee, and um, I love the episodes with the Ferengis. When when there was a Ferengi episode, everybody was happy. I mean, those guys are so funny off camera together. What a bunch of characters they are. Um, That was always fun. Um, I love working with Avery because he was so smart. I mean, he was just, he, whether he was directing or acting, he just was so thoughtful and um, such a good actor, such a wonderful actor. I, I, I was so impressed with the acting on the show. I mean, I can't think of one person who didn't, couldn't, didn't bring it every time. And they took their job seriously. And, and they were so, it was like being on set with a, with a master class of, of people. And um, that was really wonderful for me. That's a great way to put it. It basically is a master class and you're surrounded by this, that kind of talent. I mean, what, what an amazing cast. You just soak it up because, you, you know, I mean, it, some of it brought you to tears. Some of us will be laughing um, about stuff, um, but they were so professional and never that, you know, a lot of them were had pretty heavy makeups on. I know that Rene got his down to where actually he could pull, peel it off. You know, um, his makeup artist created it so it could actually still look good and he could peel it off at the end of the day. I think Ira Bear says something about, you know, where he hand every time he'd take his mask off, he'd hand it to somebody. And Ira got one of those and he has it on his wall. I heard when you're working in these makeups all day long, as hard as they do, it's very, very, very uh, challenging, especially if there's some, if, like with Armin. But he never, I mean, you never can hear anybody complaining about that. Um, Michael Dorn would work on the show. He was funny. He was a crack up. Um, when they direct, Jonathan Frakes would come over and direct, and it was so much fun. Um, and I, he just had people laughing, uh, and and he's so charming. Um, oh, the other night I I, I saw um, Anson Williams at a uh, he's a friend uh, Don Don Most who he used to do Happy Days with. Um, they're friends still, and his, Don Most's wife is a friend of mine. And uh, we saw them at a restaurant, and they were together having uh, dinner. And it was just like, you know, Anson it was good, so good to see him. I hadn't seen him for oh, since the show, and um, they still have dinner together, and it was so great. Don Most is like the nicest guy in the world. When they when they direct, it was different. Like Renee directed one. Um, and, you know, di- different seeing, it's great seeing the acting part of it. And then when they would direct and their their view and visions of, of the shows they were directing. Uh, one of the most important people to me that I, I met on the show is uh, Steve Oster, who was a producer on the show. He was a wonderful, he's a wonderful man. He's good at what he does and very uh, quiet. 
pretty quiet, but he's very, you want to do a good job for him because I respected him so much. And he was very nice to, to all of us, uh, to me. For instance, he came to my wedding and I just, I still have a warm place in my heart for him. And I don't know if you've ever heard of Jerry Bono. He was a, one of the costumers. He was a character, real character on the set. And he, um, we had James Cromwell on the set. He and Jerry would, were, were so funny together. Um, I just think of like little times like that, but where we could all experience the joy and different things and even sarcasm and exhaustion. And it's like we got it. Everybody got it. You know, everybody knew kind of how everybody was feeling. And I want to ask about, I think, what's probably a very special day for Deep Space Nine and especially for the crew working on the show. And that would be the finale, which you are also a part of. And again, this kind of goes back to our story with James Darren. But, uh, you know, I'd love to hear about what you remember from those final days when you guys were on DS9 and especially the last scene that you did. I mean, what, what were those final days like? It was very uh, it was happy. It was emotional. It was like we couldn't believe it was ending for me. Uh, at, towards the end, I was doing different things like uh, the stand ins answered the phones. We did some production stuff, too. I would take uh, some of the Make-A-Wish kids around to meet the actors. And they were, the actors were always so wonderful to these kids. And we'd all be, I mean, literally be in tears because it was so cool to see these kids light up when they come on the set. But um, so that day or those days of the last uh, episode were, everybody was there. I mean, the, the production people were in the chairs uh, in, the, in the audience. Um, James Darren was, you know, singing. Not, uh, Aaron was, was there. I mean, everybody was there doing something. And some of the family members were there, I think, of some of the production people. And it was just like a, it was like a, a party in, in a sense. Everybody was included, no matter who, who, who it was in this uh, last show. And... It just felt, it felt sad, but it was happy too. Um, I remember just talking to uh, Jonathan and I remember talking to um, all of our friends. I mean, we, you know, cried at the end because it was like, this is a long, long, long thing that just ended here. And I didn't know how much of it, how important it was until after it ended and then how many years it would go on and on and on. When we were filming that show, the, the show wasn't as popular as it is now. But I had I have friends that are showing their kids that show now because it's more current now than it was then about so many things, um, inclusion and diversity, and you know we had all these different characters and everybody was different, but everybody got along. I mean, everybody got along and. Um, the guest actors that came on all the time, Mark Alimo and Casey Biggs and um, JG. JG Hertzler? Yeah. yeah, I mean, they're all phenomenal people. And all our guest stars uh, that came on, were they were happy to be there, most of them. The only time I can remember one guest star had a real, and I don't know who, who that person was. It wasn't anybody I knew, but they came on and they were a Klingon or a Kardashian and they, they freaked out with the makeup and they had to recast that, that part really quick because the person couldn't do it. Well, that would have been a Kardashian, not a Kardashian because Kardashians love makeup. Kardashian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're 
you're right. Now, you were also uh, on TNG. You also did some Voyager. You also did some Enterprise. Uh, and I so did, a, yeah, a couple of little spots in those. Oh, uh, one of the shows, I think it was uh, it was the one that where The Rock was on it. I was going to ask you about that one, in fact. Yeah, you beat me to the punch. I was going to actually ask yeah. you about that up. So that was uh, Sunkatsi, where yeah, Seven of Nine was, fights The Rock. That was one of the first shows I, I did, and I was in the audience, and that was another. That was kind of a weird makeup. I don't know what they called the makeup that I had on in that one, but it was like a forehead with hair. That, but uh, I was in the audience, and I, I remember nobody really knew. I didn't watch the WW uh, World Wrestling you know, stuff. So I didn't really know who he was at the time. And he wasn't a movie star, but I do remember that he was really nice and he like talked to people and stuff like that. But I, I I thought it was kind of a weird, I was trying to understand what the show was about. And then she came out and she was fighting him, you know, but we were there all day long in this audience. And because they don't fill it all up with people, they move the same people around kind of like this so that it looks like a full audience, you know, it's kind of, and mix them up, mix them up, and stuff like that. So we were there all day long, and it, that was a really fun day to work that show. Yeah, I've heard from folks who worked on like the different treks that usually the different sets had a kind of different feeling, and I don't just mean like visually, you know, how they looked, how they appeared, that kind of thing. I mean like the actual atmosphere of the set. Like I've heard mm-hmm. people say, Deep Space Nine was a more serious feeling set, whereas TNG was a lot more lighthearted. So you know, having been on the four different trek shows from that time period, I mean. Do you feel there was like a different sense among the among the cast members among the set in general? Well, I, I think our show was serious, but it, it dealt with a lot of serious material. But you know, when you were in Quarks, it was like it was a party. Like you're going to Quarks, you're going to be in the party today, you know. And um, it was a much lighter episode. Um, depending if we were on lo- some of the locations, um, were interesting uh, at the beach a couple of times couple things were at the beach that we went to. Um, I, there's so many, I'm sure, I, you know, it's hard to, to pinpoint all of them. I mean, I have to like think about all that stuff and maybe get back to you on another time some on some of the more specific stuff. Yeah, I can imagine there's a lot to think about because, again, you were on like 120 episodes of, of all these different shows yeah. and beyond. So, I mean, yeah, it's a lot to remember. It, it, there is. I, it's like I could, I could go on, but I just... Um, I have to specifically think about the different uh, shows. I still have all the scripts, which you know, I mean, I can I can look at some of them and remind myself which which was which happened when. But I I I just remember loving our show so much that you know it it stood out to me always as the best show, and I feel like we all thought it was, but people (laughs) people at that time weren't. Maybe it was before its time or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny now watching kids watch it. I mean, I have fathers and moms sitting down with their kids to watch DS9, you know, uh, friends of ours. And uh, it's funny to me that that right now it's more important than it was even then. I, I definitely agree with that. We've talked about that with a lot of folks did the show and they say the same thing. They feel a lot of the same way about certain episodes and how they're still, like you said, just as relevant, if not more so today than they were back when they first aired. That's a pretty yeah. amazing thing. It's a pretty amazing compliment. I think, we, I think we really connected, though, to a lot of the people. Like, I still see a lot of the people from the show. I'm hoping to have lunch with Nana. We had, had a, a little, we were going to have lunch, and then the COVID happened, so I hope that happens because I, I'd love to see her. I haven't seen her since uh, Aaron's memorial. Um, Camille Cave, who is a, Makeup artist, Nana's makeup artist, 
is phenomenal. She has a very successful business now um, with silicone. Uh, it's called silicone, silicon or something like that. It's with um, uh, pieces for your skin to keep your skin, you know, uh, nice. And she's doing very, very well. Um, and I see her. She has twins and she married somebody. She married a camera guy from the set. It's a small world, kind of, because people keep coming around. Like, I've seen, actually seen uh, Mark Alimo out, because he lives, in, like, around where I live, um, in the neighborhood. Just so imagining Goldicott walking around the neighborhood. Seen him a couple times, yeah. Uh, Jonathan Frakes doesn't live far from here. I saw him when he first moved into this area. He was at lunch with his, his wife, you know. I mean, it's just, like, normal people. You know, out and I don't see them all all the time, but I, I still feel like we're all connected. You know, because with the Star Trek thing is, it just makes the world smaller. And you were telling me also some other stories that you had about like uh, just I guess more personal stories, uh, and, and maybe we could talk about a few of those. Uh, one of them you mentioned was a uh, memory you had of Lavar Burton. Can you share that one with us? Oh yeah, um, well Lavar to me is a prince. I mean, I love him. He's a wonderful man. Anyway, but he. When he was acting on, he was acting on his own show, and then when he came on our show, he was mostly directing, and um, and then he directed some Enterprise shows also. But when my son was born, um, in he was probably two and a half. Uh, my husband brought him to the set, and he Lavar was sitting there in his director's chair, and Lavar put him on his lap, and my son loved reading Rainbow. He didn't even know LeVar was on our set, but when he saw him, he's like, reading Rainbow, reading Rainbow. He put him on his lap and actually read him a book. And my son will never forget it to this day. And um, he was so sweet to him. And then when he when he was he was directing and it was time to roll, my son had been on the set enough to know that he needs to be quiet, you know, when they say that we were getting ready to roll. But he let um, my son yell, roll. He, rolling and then he got to say action and he'll never forget that either he was only like three so um he was very kind and wonderful they're all they're all just good to him too they they treated us you know everybody treated everybody like they were just another person except for i have such respect for people they don't have to be that way and you work on a lot of shows where they aren't but on this show i i have to say I've met some stellar, incredible people that um, I will appreciate my whole life. Now, we know with the Star Trek props department and the makeup department, they're usually pretty keen on not letting people take things home. Uh, so I'm curious if you got to, at any point, take any souvenirs home with you besides scripts. It, was there anything that you got to take with you that you're allowed to talk about? Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it. <laughs> I think the statute limitations might be okay for now. <laughs> I think, I think uh, somebody gave me a couple pieces of latinum. Oh, nice. Yeah. I have a couple of my, my Bajoran earrings that, that, you know, I wore. Do you ever wear those out in public for fun? Uh, no, <laughs> but I have, them, I have them like in a little case, you know. I think I have a couple of my noses, you know, that came off. But I was pretty, I didn't really, you know, t- take a whole lot. Mostly, I, I do have scripts from all the shows and stuff like that. Though. And call sheets and... Um, like I, over here, I have call sheets and there's one. I wanted to show you this. 
this is a this was a last card that Renee uh, gave everybody on the when this show ended, and um, it says thanks a thanks a wrap, and then it says none of us are as young as we were. So what friendship? So what friendship never never ages, and then it says uh, Robin, I'm gonna miss you, and you know we miss him. He's a good guy. Yeah, Renee is one of those folks that I, I'm so sad I never got to meet. Um, but I've heard so many great things about him, and it's you know, that's gonna still bug me forever. I never got a chance to just tell him you know how much I loved Odo and how much I loved his work in general. So you know, I'm he happy to hear that he was such a great person. You have such great memories with him, also. He was very professional. I mean, just I mean, he 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 was an actor's actor for sure. But um, it was so funny because when we were on a hiatus one year and he was driving up the coast with his wife and I, we were driving, we were driving up randomly up the coast too to see my husband's family. And I, I saw him at a gas station and we both ran into each other's arms and went, hi, <laughs> you know, at the gas station uh, on the way up the coast, you know, and he was so friendly all off camera. It was different because he wasn't, you know, in work mode. And um, just, uh, I, 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 he was a wonderful guy. I loved him. Now, I want to jump away from Star Trek for a quick moment because there's actually okay. another show that you did that is very obscure. I never heard of it until I actually did more research into you. And now I'm like obsessed about this thing. You were in a show, or you were a pilot for a show called Star Patrol. And right. that was directed by Jonathan Frakes. Uh, it was basically meant to be a pilot that was like a sci-fi parody show. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I never heard anything about this until I looked up more about you. And now I, I need to know everything I possibly can about this show. So uh, what can you tell <laughs> us about Star Patrol and what do you remember from being on it? Well, I I could, you know, I didn't know really know what it, what it was. They just asked me to be on it. And they made me this like cost, incredible costume. And I had uh, like a really different makeup on and. It was just the same people. I, I just, you know, was was glad that they wanted me to go on it for a little while. I wasn't on it very, you know, uh, long. Ron, Ron, Ron Moore, wasn't he? He was involved in that show. I think so. I'm still learning the stuff myself. Uh, I think he was. Yeah. Uh, Ron Moore uh, was another person. He, you know, he was, uh, he wrote a lot of the episodes of, of Deep Space Nine. Um, and then the movie, there was a movie that he did and everything. Um, he was really, I, I didn't even know who he was, but he'd come down and talk to everybody all the time. And um, I don't know if he had anything to do with me going on to that show because things can get really political, you know, about who wants who, where and everything like that. I just ended up there and I don't know if he had anything to do with it or if it was the past, you know, the pe other people, ADs or whatever. But, um, but I wasn't on the show very long because I... I decided that I needed to um, raise my son and I didn't want him in daycare being raised by somebody else, especially since I'd waited so long, you know, to have him. And so I wasn't on the show very long, but um, that's, that's, it's pretty simple. Now, at what point did you actually walk away from Star Trek? I mean, like we said, you, you were an enterprise, you did some Voyager. Was there a point where you just said, I've had enough. I want to raise my son now. Like, do you remember what that was, what that episode was the last one that you did perhaps? It was probably a, after the after the last show ended, an Enterprise. Um, my my husband was a camera assistant on an Enterprise with Marvin Rush. I used to go on there and work a little bit, and I stood in a few times too. And I did a couple alien things on there. I did one that Michael Westmore created this crazy alien, you know, for me. But um, the thing I remember too is that um, the Christmas parties that 
the captain from the Enter- Enterprise gave. Oh, Scott Bakula. Yes. I call him captain but of the Enterprise. We all do. But, um, he, used to, he used to throw a Christmas party every year for the families. It was like his gift to the crew. And you could bring your – now, you don't bring your kids usually just to uh, the part, you know, the cast parties at all. I mean, or any kind of party. But he threw this big party for, for the whole family at, at Christmas time. And they had, you know, face painters and they had little candies stuff. And they had all of these stations for all these kids. And then it was the most wonderful party every year that he gave. He was so generous and so such a nice guy. He was like, my husband even says, he says he's one of the nicest people he ever worked with. And uh, consistently. So that was that's just a side thing, you know, a party. But it was it was nice that he included all the children and along with his own. And um, his wife was sweet. And it was just very generous, I thought. But um, I like. And then my husband worked on a couple other shows with Marvin after that too. Um, and he's he's doing a lot of things down in the south. I think now movies are television shows, but he, he was very helpful. He was my first uh, uh, director of photography that I stood in for. So he kind of taught me how to be the ultimate stand in. I said, because he, if you weren't there, you were gone. And so I just was, I never left the set. you know, Cause he'd say his, his, his words were, if I say first, if I say second team was, that's what they call the stand in. If you don't come in there, like, and you aren't on your on, on your mark when he asks for you, he's not a happy camp. But he, he's a nice guy and very quiet. But he expects you to do do your job, and so that's how I learned this like old school. You know, you, you don't call for stand-ins. You know, you know when you're supposed to be there. And then when he says, he says he wants you to move. When he says move, <laughs> you know, by the time he says move, you better be moving. You know, so I like that because I, I think people these days, I mean, I've been on some sets where they call for stand-ins, call and call and call, and nobody's there, and they're all on their phones, and it's just not as professional, um, and we had to be uh, to keep our jobs, but I, you know, you wanted to be because you knew that if this is a, a good job to have if you weren't an actor, actor, uh, it was, a, it was a, the best thing you can get next to it. So I respected him a lot for, for being tough on us. So once your time on Star Trek had totally wrapped up, what was life for you after that point? I mean, were you retired from acting or did you continue to do other things? Um, well, my I didn't really do a lot more of that. I do a little standing in here and there. Not these days. What I did was I decided I was raising my kid. And by the time he was in school, uh, we started. Um, he started in theater, like went in third grade. He did James and the Giant Peach, you know, started with that. And then they were writing little plays for themselves. He was in a gate program in the school where the kids write their play and they do it. And anyway, I got really, really involved in uh, children's theater and the arts and music um, and how important it is to uh, have that for kids and for people, because I feel like it helps kids be compassionate and care about things other than um, just themselves. You have to be a team when you're playing, 
you know, music together and when you're doing a play together. And then he did baseball too. So when he had done theater all through uh, grade school on his own, I mean, I didn't push him, but I, what I did was support them. Like I made props and did um, um, costumes and stuff like that. And then uh, middle school, he started doing it. And then in high school, he, he was still doing it. And, and community theater and a thousand Oak civic, he did a couple shows and, I was always working behind the scenes, either raising money or uh, doing um, something with, with costumes or something like that. And um, that's what I love to do. And that was all volunteering, but I was able to spend time with, I wasn't directly with him. I'm not a, one of those moms, like a, a, you know, one of those crazy moms, but I like being involved with, with children's theater and supporting it and, and all that stuff. So that's what I, that, that's what I did up until the time he went to college. And then when he went to school, um, my father um, was uh, uh, diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And my mother had just passed away, too, in, uh, up north. Uh, I was taking care of her. And then my dad had Alzheimer's, so I was caring for him. And then um, he passed away about four or five years ago, five years ago. And then I was diagnosed with Parkinson's at that time. Um, Actually, I was diagnosed before that. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that, in fact, uh, because, yeah, that's something you told me, and I was, uh, you know, very, very interested in hearing about that. Yeah, and it's not, a, it's not sad. I mean, it, it's, it's a devastating disease for a lot of people, and it's, I think it's, it's an epidemic. I think there's more people that have it that don't. It just takes a long time and a lot of money and, or good insurance to get diagnosed took me three years to get diagnosed because I knew something was wrong for a while and wrong being, you know, just, I knew something was going on. It wasn't, it was stress, which I was being told it was. So um, when I finally got diagnosed and I say finally, because it gave me uh, relief to know that I wasn't crazy, number one. And second of all, that, you know, after I learned more about it, because I thought, you know, okay, I have Parkinson's, how long am I going to live? Because my son was a freshman in high school. And I thought, I want to see him graduate. I, you know, what, what am I going to do? And he said, he, the doctor said, you're not going to die of that. You'll die of something else. And I went, oh, well, okay, that's good. So I just went on from there. And it's been now, I, I mean, honestly, uh, probably 12 years that I've had it. And I'm doing really well. Um, I don't have a lot of, I mean, I'm, I think you can tell I don't have a lot of symptoms. Most of my symptoms are internal and um, I do a lot of uh, fundraising uh, and I promote, you know, Michael J. Fox foundation and all Parkinson's affiliated foundations that are trying to find a cure for it because there's no cure, but I deal with it on my own terms. I, you know, have medications, but I also have a, good eating habits and healthy lifestyle and for the most part and um, vitamin regimen and positivity and trying to keep stress out of our lives with, with COVID and everything going on fires and tigers and lions and tigers and bears. But um, I make the best of it. And I really think positivity will get me through to help get a cure for it. And um, I hope I'm around to see it. I want to be part of it. So um, that's good. And I get to, I just watched my son graduate from Boston university with a, a BFA in uh, acting. And congratulations so, to him for doing that as well. 
Thank you. He worked really hard, and he's uh, done his, he's done a lot of work. So now he's now he's going to be in this crazy business, <laughs> and it's up to him to keep going. I said, just don't give up. You love it, so. And what's it like for you as a mom that you got now a son in acting? I mean, he's got basically, you know, your, your husband is a camera operator. You're an actor. Your son's been an actor now. Uh, I mean, are you guys all up in there giving him advice or are you letting him do his own thing? Yeah, you know what? I, he doesn't listen to me, really. <laughs> I mean, advice, he, he has other people that he listens to more than I do. I just felt like I wanted to give him the tools and the opportunity to fight. I didn't get to do that um, when I was younger, and I wanted to give him the opportunity to um, – follow his passion. And if he liked it, I mean, he had, it's not my idea. It was his, you know, that's what he wanted to do. So I've, I've supported him in it and uh, helped him have, get the tools to be able to go out and, and work and try to find the work. But, you know, um, it's his deal now and I support him, you know, all the way. And I, I hope, I, I just say, don't give up. If it's something you really, really, really love to do, you know, keep trying, keep working at it. Um, don't give up. The people that make it don't give up. And um, so that's all I tell him. And then it's up to him. Well, hopefully one day we'll see him on maybe Star Trek Discovery or Strange New World or one of the <laughs> Trek shows, right? Maybe. You never know. You know, it's possible. He, I think when he was a little kid, he was intrigued uh, because he got to come to the set quite a bit. And he got to see me as a Klingon. You know, he didn't notice that I was even a Klingon. He still He knew I was mama, you know. It's like it was perfectly normal, but I'm dressed like a like a Klingon, you know. Um, but he he has always loved. Uh, he's very creative, and he's always loved the arts. Um, and I'm a big proponent. I'm just a big proponent and fighter for for the arts. Like I think that during this COVID time, uh, the arts and music have saved people, definitely. And I, I think that you know, aside from having the co having this. COVID stuff happening. People are going to have a long road back, you know, mental health and, and, and caring for themselves uh, and getting back to normal is, I think we have a ways to go. But I know for me, you know, if I put on some music or if I'm watching a great movie or if I'm going to the theater, you know, watching theater or, and I miss theater so much. We used to go to New York every, every year, twice a year and see, I would mean, just binge theater five and I want to do that, you know, at the end of this year, if, I, if it's possible. I want to, there's so many things I want to see to kill a mockingbird, you know. I saw Colomini on, on Broadway with Denzel Washington, you know. I mean, um, I saw Avery in it. One, one, he was in a play here in California. I mean, um, yeah, I, I just, I, I can't wait till that comes back. And I think it really has been the savior for a lot of people um, to get through. Yeah, I mean, that's basically how my podcast kicked off, too, was I finally had the time to actually work on it because of the pandemic. Basically, you yeah. know, full time, you know, what I do shut down, essentially, for quite some time. Uh, and so it gave me time to do this idea that I had for, for geez, uh, probably close to a year before yeah. I actually got down and did it. And thankfully, because of the pandemic, as horrible as it sounds, uh, you know, a lot of actors and people who worked in the industry were also sitting at home doing nothing. So it gave me mm -hmm. a nice way to reach out. And they had the time. I had the time. Um, well, and I, I think I think a lot of people found DS9 over this time, too. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of folks discovered yeah. all Star Trek. I mean, I know a lot of folks who just literally came into it in the last 15 months. They just were like, I finally got time. I'm going to start at the beginning and I'm going to work my way to the end. Right, right. And um, they seem to they seem to be all over it and love it. A lot yeah. of people. So I 
that makes me really happy, you know, that it'll live. That's what's fun to be a part of something that's going to be around for a long time and live on. And you're proud of it. You're proud of the material. You're proud of, you know, what you did in it. And even in my, my position, um, it gave me, uh, it let me take care of my mom. You know, um, I got to be around, uh, people that I just loved, um, some, some of the ADs and some of the background and the stand-ins that, you know, we were there every day. I just, I think that our lives have gone on, but we still will always have that in common. And um, I love that part of it. And Star Trek definitely gave you a lot of gifts uh, that you've used to this day uh, and that you have in your life to this day as well. And that's just great to hear that. It was so important to you because I know our fans love hearing that too. They love hearing that people who are part of that Star Trek universe love it just as much as they do. So that's just great. Yeah. And I, I'm learning it more because I, because of not being, you know, knowing that much about it. Uh, I've learned more probably over the last 10 years than I did even when I was working on it because you're in that whirlwind. And I could see parts of it, but now it, it comes together more now that everybody's a little older and we've lost a couple of our actors from that show. It's um, bittersweet, but it's still a wonderful thing to have been a part of. So by the way, Robin, also, this is completely unrelated to Star Trek talk here, but you told me off camera, uh, you did something for the Billboard Awards and uh, you did it with a person we've never talked about on the show before. I don't know how we haven't, but you did something with Shaquille O'Neal. So right. you got to tell me about that story. That just sounds too good to be true. Well, uh, the produ- one of the producers came to me and said, you know, are you, would you like to do a, a thing for the Billboard Awards? And I said, sure. You know, what is it? Well, we're going to put Klingon makeup on you. You're going to be a Klingon and you're going to go with this guy, you know, like really buff Klingon guy. You're going to go down the red carpet and you're going to do a little bit with Shaquille O'Neal. And I said, oh, okay, that sounds fun. So I went through all the makeup. They did a beautiful Klingon makeup on me. I mean, it was awesome. And um, we walked out, we did a lot of uh, uh, talking to different reporters and different things on the red carpet. Went in, there were a bunch of other characters from other shows, you know, uh, in there getting ready to go into the, the Billboard Awards. And what I had to do was I go into the, they said, you're going to walk in there and you're going to go to Shaquille O'Neal's seat. He's going to stand up. And of course, he's like, you know, huge. And I'm going to stand there and say, get out of that seat. It's mine. And you're going to, and he's going to have to, he's going to cower and kind of walk away while you sit in the seat because, you know, you're playing on chick, chick. So I said, okay, I, I'll, I'll do that. So I did it. And it was phenomenal. I mean, he stood up and I just went, I just looked at him like that. And I go, get out like that. And he uh, stood up like kind of like this and he walks out and I sat down on the seat and that's really all it was, but it was a lot of fun. It was like a whole day and red carpet and fun as a Klingon. So that's it. It was fun. <laughs> and I got to do it. I was happy they asked me, you know, it was great. So Robin, before we wrap up here today, I just wanted to ask you, uh, I guess if you can give our audience a gift today and uh, that would be, let's say some piece of advice, perhaps uh, what's something that you know today that you wish young Robin knew back when you were first starting out. Anything's possible. Don't be afraid to, to go after what you love to do and don't let anybody tell you that you can't do something um you can do it you know you you can on some level i mean for me i went into this 
and not knowing what was going to happen, but it came into something that I, it was around what I love to do, but it was a different, in a different package, but it was still very valuable and it was wonderful to be around. So I would say, and this is what I tell my son, don't be afraid. If you don't, the only failure is not trying. If you try and you go for it and you don't get it, try again because something will happen and, and have work ethic and put your phones down a little bit. You know, I mean, if we would have been sat around, I don't know. I have a picture of me. We only had a phone on the wall when I worked on Deep Space Nine and we'd have to answer the phones and the, the phone stretched out, you know, on the cord and everything. We had beep, you know, uh, pagers to know if we were working or not. But you didn't have that stuff out. I mean, when you were working, you were working. And I think that there's something to be said for paying attention. I paid attention and I learned so much by being on the set and staying on the set and not just wasting that time, you know, in that kind of way. And, and being professional, you know, just be professional, be somebody that, they want you. They want you to come back because you're easy to work with, also, and you treat everybody with respect and care. Robin, last thing for today, and that's this is going to be probably the big one now. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? The best part, I think, is is just what I'm. Everything I've told you, you know, being involved with still people from that time, um, watching their lives, you know, unfold in different ways. Um, having my family be a part of it, uh, my son, you know, being a part of it and having the memories that he does as a little big, little kid. And it's all, it's all pretty positive. You know, I had one time, one thing that happened where, you know, they tried to get rid of me, but again, like I said to your, your fans, I didn't give up, you know, I fought for my job and I knew that I deserved to be there and I, I got to stay. Because I, I, I didn't say, okay, I'll go away. I said, this is why you should keep me because I, I'm good. I know what I'm doing. I know that you need me too. And um, I will do a good job for you. you know? And so I got to keep my job for four or five more years after that. But, you know, there's always going to be somebody who's going to try to tell you you can't do it. And then you've just got to say, yes, I can. I'm going to try and I'm going to work really hard and you're going to, you're going to see that I can do it and prove yourself. Great answer. I think I got that from it. And a thick skin from the voiceovers, (laughs) you know, for when somebody wants you gone and you don't give up again after the last show on that. And I love doing those. I mean, I love learning how to do that in, in the studio. The last show, I mean, I kept everything in and I was professional. And I, I walked out to my car and put my hand on my uh, steering wheel and just cried <laughs> because I was so stressed out. From, But I thought, and it wasn't that so much as I went, I did it. I completed it. I finished it. You know, nobody could take that away from me. And um, it was really important to me to do that. So be strong, hang in there, you know, and keep doing what you love. And sometimes it'll go in a different, little different direction, but that's okay too. You know, it works its way through and um, it'll all, it'll work out. But if we survive this COVID crisis, we can do anything. I think any of us, you know, I I just feel like we're here still, we're we're doing it, you know, and 
the possibilities are endless too. So Robin, thank you so much today for chatting with us, telling us about all of your great memories from Star Trek. It really has given you so much. I mean, it's just, again, I said it earlier, it's just wonderful that Star Trek has given you just as much as Star Trek has given people like me. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's been real wonderful to help kind of tell your story. And, and I feel like, you know, your face is one of those characters that I see all the time in Deep Space Nine. Like for real, I, I know your face <laughs> from Deep Space Nine. I know your Bajoran Ridges and everything. And uh, it's just really fun meeting you now and uh, just hearing what, what a great experience you had. So thank you for sharing everything today with us. Well, thank you so much. It was really fun to do this and also bring up a lot of memories for me that, you know, I, I, I hadn't thought of for a while, but um, it was a gift that keeps on giving. Deep Space Nine was phenomenal and I'm happy to have been there. And I just want to mention also, uh, again, just to throw back to your discussion about Parkinson's, uh, if you don't mind, uh, can you just name a few of uh, the organizations that you advocate for so people can know where to donate and learn more about how they can help? Well, the main, the main one is um, Michael J. Fox Foundation, and they are working very hard to try to come up with a cure for Parkinson's. There's no cure yet. I, everybody I talk to, there's somebody that knows somebody who has had Parkinson's, either their parent or their grandparent. And it's not always the old person's uh, disease. It's a young person's too. Like I, I just heard the other day, somebody 29 had Parkinson's. And I think more people out there have it than not. And I don't know why what's going on, but we'd like to find out what's going on and why and what's causing it and a cure. So anybody wants to get involved with that, or if you have had family members that had Parkinson's, look up um, Michael J. Fox Foundation, and uh, that would be awesome. Well, Robin, thank you again so much. Really do appreciate your time. It's been real great hearing your side of things. It's perspective we don't get to hear that much from. It was a pleasure, and it was nice meeting you. Thank you so much for asking me. All right. Thank you, Robin. And of course, as always, live long and prosper. Same to you. Thank you so much. And that was our chat with Robin Morselli. Thanks so much for filling in the gaps about your life and time in Trek. And if Robin starts doing conventions, I urge you to say hi and meet her. You'll feel very welcome. And I'm sure she's got a lot more stories that we didn't even get to on this episode. And one more reminder, please check out the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org to learn how you can take action and help put an end to Parkinson's disease. And by the way, in case you're wondering about that odd show we talked about, Star Patrol, here is just a little bit more about that show. The pilot was directed by Jonathan Frakes, as we mentioned, and filmed after Deep Space Nine had completely wrapped up filming. The main ship on the show was the Icarus, and Robin was part of the crew of the Icarus Rangers. But as for the actual ship design, well, you'd actually see that pop up a few different times in Star Trek Voyager, along with some of the other aliens, some of the props, makeup, sets, all sorts of things that ultimately got recycled and reused throughout Star Trek in other iterations. The star of, well, Star Patrol, was Charles Rocket, who also did an appearance on an episode of Voyager, and the series would also have featured Sarah Ramirez as his second-in-command, along with appearances from Ed O'Neill and Jason Alexander in supporting roles, among many other cast members. The pilot was 22 minutes long, and suffice to say, it did not get picked up for renewal or to be made into a full series. One day, we might just do a whole episode about this, so I will leave you with just that tiny taste of the show that never got off the ground, called Star Patrol. So that wraps up this week's episode of Trek Untold. Thank you so much for checking it out this week. Please make sure that you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Trek Untold. That's one word, no spaces, at Trek Untold. It's the best way to get updates on guests, check out all the memes and other things that we're posting, and interact with myself and other Star Trek fans. If you'd like to support this podcast, go ahead and check out patreon.com slash trekuntold and become a subscriber to the show. Or check out teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold to check out some of our merchandise. 
If you've been enjoying Trek Untold, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to podcasts. And if you're on YouTube, please give the video a thumbs up and subscribe to our channel, youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. Leaving ratings, reviews, and comments are things that all help this podcast grow, and they'll cost you nothing but a few seconds of your time. Doing things like that, or even telling your friends or other Star Trek fans about the stuff you've heard on the show and making sure they know about us are huge helps to keeping Trek Untold growing. If you'd like to book this person to appear at an upcoming convention or autograph signing event, email scottray67 at aol.com. Thank you once again to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. Go ahead and check them out at triple-fictionproductions.net. If you'd like to send us some feedback about this episode, suggest a guest, or ask to be booked on the show, go ahead and send me an email at trekuntold at gmail.com. And of course, thanks to listeners like you for choosing Trek Untold and making it your weekly Star Trek podcast. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.